Welcome back to the Book Club Commune with me, your host, Ivy Poesy. Uh, today we're going back, getting back into Lenin, reading chapter three of Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. Um, this is the first time I'm recording anything since I caught COVID three weeks ago. Um, I'm fine now, um, but I couldn't record for a while just because it was too much damage on my throat to speak for a while, um, to speak in a voice to record, um, but I'm fine now. And we should be back to getting more episodes and getting through this book. Ten chapters. Getting to chapter three. And let's just get right into it. Chapter three. Financial capital and financial oligarchy. Quote, an increasing proportion of industrial capital does not belong to the industrialists who employ it. They obtain the use of it only through the medium of the banks, in which relation to them represents the owners of the capital. On the other hand, the bank is forced to put an increasing share of its funds into industry. Thus, to an increasing degree, the banker is being transformed into an industrial capitalist. This bank capital, i.e. capital in money form, which is thus really transformed into industrial capital, I call finance capital. So finance capital is capital controlled by banks and employed by the industrialists, end quote. This definition is incomplete insofar as it is silent on one extremely important fact, the increase of concentration of production hat and of capital to such an extent that it leads and has led to monopoly. But throughout the whole of his work, and particularly in the two chapters which precede the one from which this definition is taken, Hilferding stresses the part played by capitalist monopolies, the concentration of production, the monopoly arising therefrom, the merging or coalescence of banking with industry. This is the history of finance capital, and what gives the term finance capital its content. We have now to describe how, under commodity production and private property, the domination of capitalist monopoly inevitably becomes the domination of financial oligarchy. But it should be noted that the representation of German bourgeois science, not, and not only the of German science, like Reiser, Schulze, Gevernitz, Liefmann, and others, are all apologists for imperialism and for finance capital. Instead of revealing the mechanics of the formation of oligarchy, its methods, its revenues, in innocent and sinful, its connections with parliament, etc., they conceal, obscure, and embellish them. They evade these vexed questions by a few vague and pompous phrases. Appeals to the sense of responsibility of bank directors, praising the sense of duty of Prussian officials by giving serious study to petty details, to ridiculous bills for the supervision and regulation of monopolies, by pay, playing with theories like, for example, the following scientific definition arrived at by Professor Liefman, quote, commerce is a gainful occupation carried on by the collection, collecting goods, storing it, and making it available, end quote. From this, it would follow that primitive man who knew nothing about exchange was a traitor and that commerce will exist under socialism. But the monstrous facts concerning the monstrous rule of finance, financial oligarchy are so striking that in all capitalist countries, in America, France, and Germany, all literature has sprung up, written from the bourgeois point of view, but which nevertheless gives a fairly accurate picture and criticism, petty bourgeois naturally, of this oligarchy. 
the holding system, to which we have already briefly referred to above, should be placed at the cornerstone. The German economist Heyman probably was the first to call attention to the matter, and describes it in this way. Quote, the executive director controls the parent company. The latter reigns over the subsidiary companies, which similarly control still other subsidiaries. End quote. Thus, it is possible with a relatively small capital to dominate immense spheres of production. As a matter of fact, if, a holding, co if holding 50% of the capital is always sufficient to control a company, the executive director only needs one million to control eight millions in the second subsidiaries. And if this interlocking is extended, it's possible with one million to control 16, 32, or more millions. Experience shows that it is sufficient to own 40% of the shares of a company in order to direct its affairs, since a certain number of shares, small shareholders find it impossible in practice to attend general meetings, etc. The democratization of the ownership of shares, from which the bourgeois, sophists, and opportunists would-be social democrats expect, or declare that they expect, the democratization of capital, the strengthening of the role of the small-scale production, etc., is, in fact, one of the ways of increasing the power of the financial oligarchy. For this reason, among others, in the more advanced or in the older and more experienced capitalist countries, the law allows the issue of shares of very small denomination. In Germany, it is illegal to issue shares of less than 1,000 marks, and the magnates of German finance look with an envious eye at England, where it is legal to issue one-pound shares. Siemens, one of the biggest industrialists and financial kings in Germany, told the Reichstag on June 7, 1900, that one of the one-pound share is one of the bases of British imperialism. This merchant has a much deeper and more Marxist understanding of imperialism than a certain dis disreputable writer, generally held to believe the founders of Russian Marxism, who believes that imperialism is a bad habit of certain nations. Side note real quick, that's Karl Kautsky. But the holding system not only serves to increase the power of monopolists enormously, it also enables them to resort with impunity to all sorts of shady tricks to cheat the public, for the directors of the parent company are not legally responsible for the subsidiary companies, which are supposed to be independent, and through the medium of which they can do anything. Here's an example from the German Review, Die Bank, from, for May 1914. Quote, the Spring Steel Corporation of Kassel was regarded some years ago as being one of the most profitable enterprises in Germany. Through bad management, its dividends fell within the space of a few years from 50% to nil, 15% to nil. It appears that the board, without consulting the shareholders, had loaned 6 million marks to one of the subsidiary companies, the Hassia Limited, which had a nominal capital of only some hundred thousands of marks. This commitment, amounting to nearly treble the capital of the parent company, was never mentioned in the balance sheets. This was because it did not violate any provisions of company law. It was quite legal. Uh, this admission was quite legal and could be kept up to two whole years because it did not violate any provisions of company law. The chairman of the supervisory board, who, as the responsible head, signed the false balance sheets, was and still is the president of the Castle Chamber of Commerce. The shareholders only heard of the loan to Hassia Limited long after when it had long been proved that it to be a mistake. This, w this word the writer should have put in quotation marks, note from Lenin, 
And when Spring Steel shares had dropped nearly 100 points because those in the know had got rid of them. This is this typical example of balance sheet jugglery, quite common in joint stock companies, explains why boards of directors are more willing to undertake risky transactions than individual enterprises. Modern methods of drawing up balance sheets not only make it possible to conceal doubtful undertakings from the average shareholder, but also allow the people most concerned to escape the consequences, consequence of unsuccessful speculation by selling their shares in time while the private dealer risks mm-hmm. his own skin. The balance sheets of most joint stock companies put us in mind of the palimpsests of the Middle Ages, where the visible inscription had first been to be erased in order to discover beneath another inscription giving the real meaning of the document. Uh, palimpsests are parchment documents on which the original inscription was obliterated and another inscription imposed, another note by Lenin. The simplest and therefore most common procedure for marking balance sheets, making balance sheets indecipherable, is to divide a single business into several parts by setting up subsidiary companies or by annexing such. The advantage of the system for various objects, legal and illegal, are so evident that it is quite unusual to find an important company which does not use it. End quote. As an example of the of an important monopolist company widely employing the system, the author quotes the famous uh, AEG, I'm just saying AEG, to which, the, which we shall refer later on. In 1912, it was calculated that this company held shares from 175 to 200 other companies, controlling them, of course, and thus having a control of a total capital of 1.5 billion marks. All this control, the publication of balance sheets, the drawing up of balance sheets according to a definite form, the public auditing of accounts, the things about which well-intentioned professionals and officials, that is, those imbued with the good intentions of defending and embellishing capitalism, discourse to the public, are of no avail. For private property is sacred, and no one can be prohibited from buying, selling, exchanging, or mortgaging shares, etc. The extent to which this holding system has developed in the big Russian banks may be judged by the figures given by A. Agad, who was for 15 years an official of Russo-Chinese Bank, and who, in May 1914, published a book not altogether correctly entitled Big Banks and the World Market. The author divides the great Russian banks into two main categories, A. Those which operate as holding banks, and B. Independent banks, the independence of the latter, being arbitrarily taken to mean and mean being independent of foreign banks. The author subdivides the first group into three groups, German holdings, British, and French, having in view those houses in which business and the big banks of the three European countries mentioned hold stock and predominate. The author divides the capital of banks into productively invested capital in industrial and commercial undertakings and speculatively invested capital in stock exchange and financial operations. Assuming from his petty bourgeois reformist point of view that it is possible under capitalism to separate the first form of investment from the second and to abolish the second form. Here are the figures he supplies. I'm just going to skip that and just let Lenin explain in the next one. According to these figures, of the approximately 4 billion rubles making up the working capital of the big banks, more than three-fourths 
more than the three billion belonged to banks, which in reality were only subsidiary companies of foreign banks, and chiefly of the Paris Bank, the famous trio, Union, Union Parisienne, Paris et Pabas, and Societe Generale, and of the Berlin banks, particularly the Deutsche Bank and the Discounto Gesellschaft. Two of the most important Russian banks, the Russian Bank and Foreign Trade and the St. Petersburg International Corp Commercial, between 1906 and 1912, increased the capital from 44 million to 98 million rubles, and their reserve from 15 to 39 million, employing three-fourths of German capital. The first belongs to Deutsche Bank Group, and the second to Discounto Gesellschaft. The worthy god is indignant at the fact that the majority of the shares are held by German banks, and that, therefore, the Russian shareholders are powerless. Naturally, the country which exports capital skims the cream. For example, Deutsche Bank, while in introducing the shares of the Siberian Commercial Bank for the Berlin market, kept them in its portfolio for a whole year, and then sold them at a rate of 193 for 100, that is, at nearly twice their nominal value, earning a profit of nearly 6 million rubles, which Hilferding calls promoter's profits. Our author puts the total resources of the principal St. Petersburg Bank at 8,235,000,000 rubles, and the holdings, or rather the extent to which foreign banks dominated them, he estimate as follows. French banks, 55%, English, 10%, German, 35%. The author calculates that the, of a total of 8,235,000,000 rubles of functioning capital, 3,687,000,000 rubles, over 40%, fall to the share of the syndicates, Prodigal and Prodimenta, and the syndicates in the oil, metallurgical, and cement industries. Thus, the merging of the bank and industrial capital has also made great strides in, Russian owing, in Russia owing to the formation of capitalist monopolies. Financial capital, concentrated in a few hands of exercising and exercising a virtual monopoly, exacts enormous and ever-increasing profits from the floating of companies, issue of stock, state loans, etc., tightens the grip of the financial oligarchies, and levies tribute among the whole of society for the benefit of the monopolists. Here's an example, taken from a multitude of others, of the methods employed by American trusts, quoted by Hilferding in 1887. Havermeyer founded the Sugar Trusts by amalgamating 15 small firms whose total capital amounted to nearly 6.5 million. Suitably watered, as the Americans say, the capital of the trust was increased to 50 million. This overcapitalization anticipated the profits of the monopoly in the same way as the United States Steel Corporation anticipated its profits by buying up as many iron fields as possible. In fact, the Sugar Trust managed to impose monopoly prices on a market which secured it such profits that it could pay 10% dividend on capital, watered sevenfold, or about 70% on the capital actually invested at the time of creation of the trust. In 1909, the capital of the Sugar Trust was increased to 90 million. In 22 years, it has increased its capital more than tenfold. In France, the role of the financial oligarchy against the financial oligarchy in France, the title of the well-known book by Lysis, the fifth edition of which was published in 1908, assumed a form that was only slightly different. For, for most of the powerful banks enjoy not a relative, but an absolute monopoly in the issue of bonds. In reality, it is a trust of the big banks, 
and their monopoly ensures the monopolist profits form bond issues. A country borrowing for France rarely gets more than 90% of the total of the loan. The remaining 10% goes to the banks of the other middlemen. The profit made by the banks of the Russo-Chinese loans of 400 million francs amounted to 8% out of the Russian 1904 loan of 800 million francs. To the, the profit amounted to 10%. Out of the Moroccan 1904 loan of 62,500,000 francs, to 18.75%. Capitalism, which began its development with petty usury capital, ends its development with gigantic usury capital. The French, says Lysis, are the usurers of Europe. All the conditions of economic life are being profoundly modified by this transformation of capitalism. With the stationary population and stagnant industry, commerce and shipping, the country can grow rich by usury. 50 persons representing a capital of 8 million francs can control 2 billion francs deposited in four banks. The holding system, with which we are already familiar, leads to the same results. One of the biggest banks, the Société Générale, for instance, for instance pursues, issues 64,000 bonds for one of its subsidiary companies, the Egyptian sugar refineries. The bonds are issued at 150%. The bank gained 50 centimes on the franc. The dividends of the new company are then founded to be facetious. The public lost 90 to 100 million francs. One of the directors of Societe Generale is a member of the board of directors of the Egyptian sugar refineries. Hence, it is not surprising that the author is driven to the conclusion that the French Republic is a financial monarchy. Quote, it is, in, it is the complete domination of the financial oligarchy. The latter controls the press and the government." End quote. <clears throat> the extraordinary high rate of profit obtained from the issue of bonds, which is one of the principal functions of finance capital, plays a large role in the development and stabilization of the financial oligarchy. Quote, there is not in the whole country a single business that brings in profits even approximately equal to those obtained from the issue of bonds, says the German bank Die Bank, German magazine Die Bank. No banking operation brings in the profits comparable with those obtained from the flotation of loans, end quote. According to the, to the German economist, the average annual profits made on the issue of industrial securities were as follows. Um, it increased over time. In the 10 years from 1891 to 1900, more than a billion marks were earned on the issues of industrial securities. While during the periods of industrial boom, the profits of financial capital are disproportionately large, during periods of depression, small and unsound businesses go out of existence, and the big banks take up holdings in their shares, which are bought up for next to nothing, or in profitable schemes for their reconstructions and reorganization, and the reconstruction of undertakings which have already been which have been running at a loss. The share capital is written down, that is, profits are distributed on a smaller capital and subsequently are calculated on the smaller basis. If the income has fallen to nil, new capital is called in, which combined with the old and less remunerative capital will bring in an adequate return. Incidentally, adds Hilferding, these reorganizations and reconstructions have a twofold significance for the banks. First, as profitable transactions, and secondly, as opportunities for securing control of the companies in difficulties." End quote. Here is an instance. 
the Union Mining Company of Dortmund, founded in 1872 with a capital of 400 million marks, saw the market price of its shares fall to 170 after it had paid 12 cent, a 12% dividend in its first year. Finance Capital skimmed the cream and earned a trifle of something like 28 million marks. The principal sponsor of this company was that very big German bank, Disconto Gesellschaft, which was so successful, successfully attained the capital of 300 million marks. Later, the dividend of the union dropped to nil. The shareholders had to consent to a writing down of capital, that is, losing some of it in order not to lose all of it. By a series of reconstructions, more than 73 million marks were written off the books for the, of the union during the course of 30 years. Quote, at the present time, the original shareholders of this company possess only 5% of the nominal value of their shares, end quote. But the bank made a profit out of every reconstruction. Speculation in land situated in the suburbs of rapidly growing towns is a particularly profitable operation for finance capital. The monopoly of the bank merges here with the monopoly of the ground rent and with the monopoly of the means of communication, since the increase in value of the land and the possibility of selling it profitably in allotments is mainly dependent on the good means of communication with the center of town, and these means the communication are in the hands of large companies connected by means of the holding system and by the distribution of positions on the directories, directorates with the interested banks. As a result, we get with a German writer, L. Ischwag, Iswage, a contributor to Die Bank, has made a special study of real estate business and mortgages, caused the formation of a balk. Financial speculation in the land of suburbs of large towns, collapse of building enterprises, like that of the Berlin firm of Boswell and Knauer, which grabbed 100 million marks with the help of the sound and solid Deutsche Bank. The latter acting, of course, discreetly behind the scenes, though through the holding system and getting out of it by losing only 12 million marks. The ruin of the small masters and of workers who get nothing from the fraudulent building firms, underhand agreements with the honest Berlin police firm and the Berlin administration for the purpose of getting control of the issue of building sites, tenders, building licenses, etc., American ethics, so strongly but hypocritically condemned by European professors and well-meaning bourgeois, have, in the age of finance capital, become the ethics of literally every large city, every large city, no matter what country it is in. At the beginning of 1914, there is talks in Berlin of proposed formation of a traffic trust to combine three Berlin traffic undertakings, i.e. to establish common interests between Metropolitan Electric Railway, the Tramway Company, and the Omnibus Company. Quote, We know, wrote Die Bank, that this plan has been contemplated since it became known that the majority of the shares in the bus company have been acquired by the other two traffic companies. We may believe that those who are pursuing this aim, whether they say that they are say that by uniting the transportation service, they will unify traffic and thus secure economic parts, of which they will in time benefit the public. But the question is complicated by the fact that behind the traffic trust that are that is being formed are the banks, which, 
if they desire, can subordinate the means of communication which they have monopolized to the interest of their real estate business. To be convinced of the reasonableness of such a conjecture, we need only to recall that at the very formation of the Elevated Railway Company, the traffic interest became interlocked with the real estate interest of the bank, which financed it, and this interlocking even created the prerequisites for the formulation of, of the traffic enterprise. Its eastern line, in fact, was to run through land, which, when it became certain that the line was to be laid down, the bank sold to the real estate firm at an enormous profit for itself and for several partners in the transaction." End quote. A monopoly, once it is formed and controls thousands of millions, inevitably penetrates into every sphere of public life, regardless of the form of government and all other details. In the economic literature of Germany, one usually comes across the servile praise of the integrity of the Prussian bureaucracy and the allusions to the French Panama scandal and to the political corruption in America. But the fact is that even the bourgeois literature devoted to German banking matters constantly has to go beyond the field of purely banking operations and to speak for existence. For instance, the attraction of the banks in reference to the increasing frequency in which public officials take employment with the banks. How about the integrity of the state official who, in his inmost heart, is aspiring to a soft job in the Berhenstrasse, the street in Berlin, in which the head office of the Deutsche Bank is situated? In 1909, the publisher of Die Bank, Alfred Landsberg, wrote an article entitled The Economic Significance of Byzantinism, in which he incidentally referred to Wilhelm II's tour of Palestine and to the immediate result of this journey, the construction of the Baghdad Railway, that fatal great product of German enterprise, which is more responsible for the encirclement than all political blunders put together. By encirclement, it's meant the policy of Edward the seventh of isolating Germany by surrounding her with imperialist anti-German alliance. In 1912, another contributor to this magazine, Eswage, Svage, to whom we have already re referred, wrote an article entitled Plutocracy and Bureaucracy, in which he in which he exposes the case of a German official named Volker, who was a zealous member of the cartel committee, who sometime later obtained a lucrative post in the biggest cartel, i.e. the steel syndicate. Similar cases, by no means casual, forced this bourgeois author to admit that the econ economic liberty to gar guaranteed by the German constitution is at present, in many departments, the economic life, only a meaningless phrase, and that under the rule of the plutocrats, the widest political liberty cannot save us from being converted into a nation of unfree people. As for Russia, we will content ourselves by quoting one example. Some years ago, all the newspapers announced that Davidov, the director of the, of the credit department of the treasury, had resigned his post to take employment with a certain big bank at a salary which, according to the contract, was to amount to over 1 million rubles in the course of several years. The function of the credit department is to coordinate the activities of all the central credit institutions to the country. It also grants subsidiaries to banks in St. Petersburg and Moscow, amounting to between 800 and 1,000 million rubles. Generally speaking, under capitalism, the ownership of capital is separate from the application of capital to production. 
Money capital is separate from the industri from industrial or productive capital. The rentier, living entirely on income and tamed from money capital, is separated from the entrepreneur and from all those directly concerned in the management of capital. Imperialism, or the rule of finance capital, is that highest stage of capitalism in which the separation reaches vast proportions. The supremacy of finance capital over all other forms of capital means the rule of the rentier and the financial oligarchy. It means the crystallization of a small number of financially powerful states from among the all the rest. The extent to which this process is going on may be judged from the stasis statistics on emission, i.e., the issues of all kinds of secret securities. In the Bulletin of the International Statistical Institute, A. NAMAC has published very comprehensive and complete comparative figures covering the issues of securities all over the world, which have been repeatedly quoted in economic literature. The following are the totals he gives for four decades. At, in the total issues of billions of francs, A. increase over time. In the 1870s, the total amount of issues for the whole world was high, owing particularly to the loans floated in connection with the Franco-Prussian War and the com company promoting booms which set in, the German in Germany after the war. In general, the increase is not very rapid in the last decades of the 19th century and only in the first 10 years of the 20th, cent in the 20th century is an enormous increase observed of almost 100%. Thus, the beginning of the 20th century marks the turning point, not only in regard to the growth of monopolies, cartels, syndicates, trusts, of which we have already spoken, but also in regard to the development of finance capital. Neymark estimates the total amount of issued securities currently in the world in 1910 to, to about, at about 815 billion francs. Deducting from the, this amount, which might have been duplicated, he reduces it to a total to 575 to 600 billion, which is distributed among the various countries as follows. Uh, we will take from this. He takes 600 billion. Um, over half of it is in um, is between the United States, Great Britain, France, Germany, and uh, yeah. Over half of it is between those four com countries. The rest is distributed among various countries in uh, Europe. It will be seen from one at once from these figures what a privileged position is held by the four of the richest capitalist countries, each which controls securities ranging approximately from 100 to 150 billion francs. Two of these countries are the oldest capitalist countries, and we shall see possess the most colonies, England and France. The other two are in the front rank as in regards to rapidity of development and the degree of extension of capitalist monopolies in the industry, United States and Germany. Together, these four countries own 479 billion francs. That is nearly 80% of the world's finance capital. Thus, in one way or another, the whole of the world is more or less the debtor or to and vassal of these four international banker countries, the four pillars of world finance capital. It's particularly important to examine the part which capital exports play in creating the international network of dependence and ties of four of finance capital.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Book Club Commune. Next episode, we'll be reading Chapter 4, The Export of Capital. Um, like always, please like and share and send this to your comrades, anyone you think needs to have access to this work. This chapter is a particular note just because of its connections to modern day life. I mean, if this didn't scream the 2008 financial crisis, it should have because it just greens what happened in 2008. Um, I just want to do a quick little shout out for myself. Um, I've started up a new website where I'm posting the backlog of episodes onto that. And also just doing short little stupid writings of my own takes on politics and mainly on media since I am a journalism student. I want to do a lot of media criticism on American media. Um, so um, yeah, I'm going to put a link to that in the notes to this episode. So if you want to check that out, that'd be sick. Um, so yeah, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, solidarity forever and keep on reading.